this work. There we go. I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and go back with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16 is where we will be again this morning. And we're going to continue our look at reaching the unreached. And this really is the third part, or the third time rather, that we have studied this passage of Scripture. There's so much there that we will never exhaust it all, that's for sure. Acts 16, verses 11 through 15 will be our text. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this day. God, as we just sang the gospel, we're just humbled. And we say thank you. God, I pray that your spirit takes our time right now in the word and illumines our hearts. What you do for Lydia, or excuse me, that you do for us, what you did for Lydia. That God, you open our hearts to have greater understanding. Because the truth is, not only do we need that for initial saving faith. But Lord, we need that for the process of sanctification as well. Your spirit has to continue to open our eyes if we're ever going to understand anything biblically about you. And so, God, we don't want to walk in our own wisdom. We don't want to walk in our own opinions. I agree with what Robert has prayed. Lord, we thank you. You've given us an authoritative, infallible, sufficient word. And so, God, we place ourselves right now, mind, heart, soul, body, and strength underneath the authority of your word. And we humbly ask that you speak. And God, in the scripture reading that we read, what a powerful scripture reading this morning. Lord, we don't want the leaven of the Pharisees to be in our hearts. So as you are dealing with us and unpacking the scriptures and God, your spirit showing us truth today, Lord, help us to embrace that. And not fight against it. Lord, there may be somebody here that really needs to come to faith in Christ today. I pray that you give them a new heart. God, I pray that they respond in repentance and faith. Father, I pray that today will be the day of salvation for them. So Lord, we love you and we praise you. We pray for clarity. We pray for an understanding. God, we pray for an application be able to apply it to our lives we don't want to be just hearers only we want to be doers as well and god we need your spirit now to help us so we pray all this in the name of jesus our risen king amen well we have learned in us in our study of the book of acts and we've seen this over and over and over again from the very beginning of our study in acts that our god is a missionary god that he is actively working to save his people and we've seen this in Lydia's conversion we saw this in the events that surrounded Paul actually making his way to Lydia and how God in his kindness and in his goodness redirected Paul's steps ultimately leading him to a riverbank where he met several ladies one of which was Lydia 
We've seen our God and how he saves people through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel must be proclaimed and the gospel must be shared. The gospel must be taught, empowered by the spirit. And the spirit takes the gospel as it's preached and opens hearts that were once closed and opens hearts that were once dead and makes dead sinners willing and able to receive the gospel and to respond to the gospel we saw that not only are those things true, but in our passage, we also saw repentance and faith, that there is a distinction between regeneration and conversion. And what I want you to remember this morning, and I know that you already know this, but we can never hear this enough, but all of salvation is of grace. Amen. All of it is of grace. Someone once said, the only thing we bring to the table is our sin. And that's true. Salvation is all of grace. As we return back to Acts 16 this morning, my aim is to, to revisit Lydia's conversion and in particular look at the evidences of her conversion and then to make a very specific and pointed and narrow application in the realm of regenerate church membership. And then from there, to help us understand that we can have a confidence in our missionary efforts, whether they're here in Okeechobee or whether they're around the world, because of our God and his means of grace. So look with me at the text, please. Acts 16, verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. And the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after, she was baptized, and her household as well. She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us we'll begin working through our text this morning in verse 14 let me remind you and i know that i don't necessarily need to but it's good to be reminded that lydia's conversion matches all of our conversions i don't mean that we were saved at the same time or the same place but what i do mean is we were saved in the same way if you are a born-again child of god there was a time when someone shared the gospel with you and through the sharing of the gospel with you the Lord in his kindness and the Lord in his grace and the Lord in his mercy and the Lord in his love opens your heart so that you would receive the gospel and respond in repentance and faith like Lydia. She comes to faith in Christ. She is born again and immediately there are evidences of her conversion. We've already talked about repentance and faith and I briefly mentioned a few others to you last week, but I would like to go just a little bit deeper this morning look at verse 15 
The first evidence of conversion is that she was baptized. She was baptized. Now, we need to say that baptism does not save you. And we need to say that baptism, biblically speaking, comes after conversion, not before. That a biblical baptism is after someone has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. After they have been born again. That's why we practice what's called believer's baptism. Because we believe that the scriptures lead us in that direction. The scriptures, when you study it, show us that the only folks that should be baptized are those that are genuinely born again. Let's remind ourselves that when we are going through the baptismal waters, many times we have folks share their testimony here at Everglades before they're baptized. And that's a good thing as they bear witness to what God's done in their life, how they came to faith in Christ and all that goes with that. But we do need to connect the other dot that biblically when someone is baptized, they're also proclaiming their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. This is where they are telling the whole world that their new Lord is Jesus, that they are no longer following self-rule, but they're following God rule, that they're no longer doing their own thing, but they want to follow Christ. It's a a symbol, if you will, of a new heart and a new life and a new direction. It really does show not only regeneration, but it really does show repentance and faith and it really does show that we'll be resurrected one day and it really does show all of salvation and so for Lydia in this moment I want you to understand the significance of what she is doing she was a worshiper of God she was waiting for the Messiah so when she goes through these baptismal waters what she is proclaiming to that world at that time is she had found the Messiah And that she believes that Jesus of Nazareth is the one that they had been waiting for. And that he has saved her from her sins. And she wanted to follow him all of her days. Now this would have been important in a Jewish context as identifying with the Jewish community. Because the Jewish community were still waiting for the Messiah just like they are still waiting today. It also would have been important in a Roman context, would it not? Because she was not Jewish by ethnicity. But she was Roman. She was from Thyatira. She was actually from Asia. Isn't it interesting as a brief side note, Miss Kim, that where Paul first wanted to go was Asia? (laughs) That in God and his irony, that God and his goodness led him to Philippi to meet an Asian to lead her to Christ. It's interesting. That's how God works. But that's what she's doing in this moment. She's proclaiming her faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we do have to say this, that there have been many that have gone through the baptismal waters that were not really born again. But that's not true of Lydia. She is a genuine convert. And so we do need to understand that while there are many false converts that have been baptized, like Simon, we've already read about in the book of Acts. But at the end of the day, that doesn't mean that baptism is devalued or de-emphasized in any way. That it surely is an evidence of conversion when someone rises up and says, I am here to give my life and follow King Jesus. Very, very, very important. We do need to remember that when you read the book of Acts, every single baptism that's recorded in the book of Acts is by a believer. Don't sleep on that. 
Everyone that we've seen so far has come after someone has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, I do need to go here for just a minute and say that we do have good God-honoring brothers that I love in the faith deeply and dearly, and I've profited from deeply and dearly that see this issue differently. There are many good God-honoring, and I'm emphasizing the word brothers, that believe that it's okay to baptize infants. The Bible does not lead us in that direction. To baptize a child would be to baptize someone through sprinkling that's unregenerate. And the Bible does not lead us in that way. So we want to just affirm what we believe as a church, that baptism is for someone who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's what Lydia does. Next, look at the text. Notice we talked about this last week, but let's look at it again. Her household believes as well, and her household is saved as well. I couldn't help but think, how in the world did they hear about King Jesus? How did they find out that Jesus was the Messiah? How did they find out that they needed to be forgiven? How did they find out that they could find forgiveness in Christ alone? It had to be through the dot that was connected with Lydia's life. That when Lydia comes to faith in Christ, there's this natural desire that wells up within the genuine convert that you want other people to hear. In fact, when you look at the text, we see way back in verse 13 that the only folks that were gathered were these women. And then when you look at verse 15, her household believes we can connect the dot that it's somehow in some way, though not recorded by Luke, that there was a conversation or many conversations that had taken place. Probably Lydia brought those missionaries, that missionary team, to her family, to her household, and they profess faith in Christ. I've been saying this over and over and over again, and I need to say it again because we tend to forget. Our brains leak. Who's your Lydia this morning? Who's your Lydia? Who's the unreached in your life? We often talk about the unreached people of the world, and we rightly need to, that have limited and no access to the gospel. They are certainly out there, two billion people on the face of the planet that have no access to the gospel. But we do need to connect the dot in our lives as well, that there are people all around us that are also unreached. So who's your Lydia? Lydia sets a great example for us, does she not? She comes to faith in Christ, and the immediate cry of her heart, Chimo, the immediate cry of her heart is this good news that she has heard. She wants others to hear that there is a God and this God forgives and this God is good and this God needs to be known. So she shares with her family. They believe and they identify with Christ in baptism as well. That's the second evidence of conversion. Third, I want you to look back at verse 15. Now, this is important because, boy, do we live in a day where there is a mantra that says, don't judge me. Lydia didn't feel that way. The New Testament doesn't feel that way. There's a difference between judging someone as they're not by our own standard of self-righteousness and holding someone accountable by the word. Those are two different things. The Bible condemns for sure us being judgmental and critical and harsh and self-righteous. Myself, yourself, your righteousness, 
Our self-righteousness is not the standard that we are to judge one another by, but the word of God. And this passage helps us understand the humility, which is the third evidence of her conversion. Notice what she says. She says, if you have judged me, that word judge simply means to judge in one's mind as is what as what is right or what is proper. It means to decide or to determine. Let me put it to you this way. This is what Lydia does. She steps to Paul and his team and says, my brothers, look at my life. I have nothing to hide. I want you to honestly look at my life and evaluate and to determine and to decide what you see in me. What was she wanting them to look at? Look back at the text. If you have judged me to be what? Faithful. That word faithful means to speak of firmness in the faith. It means to be trusting in Christ. So here's what she's doing in a very humble way. Because a prideful person doesn't do this. A prideful person doesn't want you in their life. A prideful person doesn't want you to speak truth. A prideful person will run. A, pri a private person will isolate. A, private, a prideful person will fight back and defend and become a defense attorney. But a humble person says, no, look at me. Look at my life. See if you see anything in me that doesn't honor the Lord. And so what she is saying here is this. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke. Look at me and see if you see evidences of genuine conversion. Do you see that I love the Lord? Do you see faith in Christ in my life? That's radical, is it not, in our day? It's radical. We have lowered the bar for the purity of our churches so low that to even have this conversation from the text, there's something inside of us, if we're honest, that makes us kind of uncomfortable. But yet the scriptures lead us in that direction, and Lydia is inviting it. Because what's the worst thing that could be true for her to have a false profession of faith and think she's in the faith and not be in the faith? I mean, my goodness, Paul tells the Corinthians in chapter 13 of the first letter that he wrote to them, test yourselves, examine yourselves, see whether or not you are in the faith because there's a chance you might not be in the faith. It's a win-win, is it not? If you're not in the faith, repent and believe the gospel. If you're in the faith, move forward in faith. There's no loss. No one loses. <laughs> it's always about King Jesus. It's awesome. There's a lesson here that we'll come back to that's deeper than even this moment. But for now, I want you to think about she's teachable. She's submissive. She's humble. My brothers and my sisters, it's easy. Israel and I were talking earlier about how it's so easy to read over things in the text. And it is. We're dull sheep. This is why we pray for the Spirit's illumination in our hearts. Because we need it. We need it to see truth. And so one thing that we're learning here is what it looks like to be genuinely born again is to put down pride and put on humility. Paul tells the Colossians that very thing in chapter 3, clothe yourselves with humility. Notice verse 15 again. She's saying, look at my life. Look deep down inside my soul. Look at the evidence of my life. 
Look at my fruits, not just my profession, but my fruit. And see if my walk backs my talk. And if it does, then I'm asking you to come to my house and stay. What wisdom Lydia displays. What does she mean when she says, come to my house and stay? Well, I referenced this last week. It's the evidence of conversion of hospitality. It's the evidence of conversion of hospitality. And all that simply means is this. That you no longer use the gifts God's given you. You no longer use the things God's given you. You no longer use your stuff. You no longer use your house for yourself. But you begin to use the things that God has given you for the good of other people. That's all it means. Because she's been changed by God, she's not living for money anymore. She's not living for her business anymore. We already saw in verse 14 that she must have been a very lucrative businesswoman that God had blessed. But when you get to verse 15, her heart has changed and her business plan has changed. It's no longer about dollars. It's no longer about cents. It's no longer about net worth. It's now about how can I use what God has given me, whether it's a lot or a little. It doesn't really matter. How do I use what God has given me for the good of other people? My brothers and sisters, that's an evidence of conversion. Her change of heart leads her to, to use her stuff in a different way. Now, what all that means is this for us today. If you are truly in the faith, there will be evidence that you've been changed. There'll be evidence that, as George Whitfield said, that the life of God is in your soul, which leads me now to how I want to use the balance of our time together this morning and make a very pointed but yet important and a very needed call to remembrance and a call to understanding the importance of regenerate church membership. Being a Reformed Baptist, certainly includes understanding that God is sovereign in salvation. Amen? That's important. But I would submit to you this morning, it doesn't stop there. It's important that we grasp that. We need to grasp that. But my brothers and my sisters, as a Reformed Baptist, there are other distinctives that we have that are very important as well. This is why we're studying the Second London Confession on Sunday mornings in Family Connect. And if you've not been coming, I want to invite you to come. Yes, it's important to be together in community and study the Word of God. But my goodness, how do we know who we are if we don't study it? You know, one of the sad realities with all these small churches that we've been helping over the last 10 to 15 years, and I've heard it recently again. Pastor Tom and I in Israel sat with a sister church two weeks ago, and they were repenting, and what they were repenting from, they didn't even know that they were repenting, but they were repenting, weren't they, Israel? What they were repenting from is losing, number one, and most importantly, the Bible, 
And then number two, they said, basically, we don't even know who we are anymore as Baptists. And I want you to understand that that is a crisis in our culture. We are living in a day where where people want to remove labels and remove this and remove that. My brothers and my sisters, I stand here with every fiber of my being. I wish I could open your head and pour it in. I want you to know that our Baptist forefathers, our brothers and our sisters, they bled and they died and they were put in prison for believing these doctrines. It's important. It's important enough that they would put it in a confession of faith. And I want you to understand I don't know how to say this more clearly. I've said this to you so many times before, and I will say it again until God moves me from this church, but I will not always be here. Your faith can't be my faith. Your belief can't be my belief. Your doctrinal convictions can't be my doctrinal convictions. They have to be ours. We have to own it. We have to believe it. We have to stand firm in it. We have to be willing to die for it. Because the chances are great that at some point in time, we will be tested again. Those of you that have been here for a long time, you know we've been tested and tested and tested and tested. What do we believe and will we stand for what we believe? And by God's grace, we've passed every test at great cost at times. Our understanding of the nature and the purpose of the church needs to flow out of the scriptures. Very important. This means that when it comes to who can and who can't be members of the church, we need to look to the scriptures to sort that out. And when we do that from texts like ours this morning and many others, we see that according to the scripture, the church is to practice what is called regenerate church membership. If you've ever wondered when we covenant together and even prior to when you covenant with us as a member, if you've ever wondered why that first line says we've been led by the Lord Jesus Christ to repent of our sins and place our faith in him, that's there because we value regenerate church membership. If you've ever wondered why we have first steps, if you've ever wondered why there's a membership interview, if you ever wondered why we help you with evidences of conversion, If you ever wondered why we go at a snail's pace and it takes so long for someone to start first steps and become a member of our church, there is a method to our madness. You lose the purity of the church, you lose your generate church membership, and you kill the church over time. The way to kill a church is to fill it with false converts. And brothers and sisters, we need to guard the front door strongly. And firmly, gently, yes, with love, of course. But we must not budge. We must not bend. We must not break. We need to have the fortitude and the strength to say, even if someone is being sought by God, even if someone's being drawn by God, that if they're not in the faith yet, we need to be able to have the courage to say, I see God's working in you and I know God's drawing you, but not yet. A little more time and a little more prayer and a little more study is what you need. My brothers and sisters, don't buy the lie. That's not unloving. That's loving. (laughs) That is loving. You're dealing with someone's soul. How could that be unloving? 
But listen, hear me, hear me, hear me. We have been so influenced by political correctness in our culture, and we don't want to offend anyone. Do you not understand that if you just let anybody in, you have offended God? And you will have to stand before God and give an account for that person's soul one day. And they're going to stand up before God and say, why did you, church member, why did you, pastor, let me in so easily and not deal with my soul? I think what I'm trying to say is it's a great indictment on our culture how small we value regeneration, conversion, church membership, and the purity of the local church. We are literally studying the birth of the Philippian church. Lydia comes to faith in Christ. Later the, later the Philippian jailer comes to faith in Christ. This church is composed of members who have been born again, and their baptism is scriptural following conversion. Brother Phil, I spent some time this week looking beyond the book of Acts, and I want to challenge you to do this. We should be Bereans, amen? You should study the scriptures. It's okay, hear me say this, it is okay for you to take notes or to re-listen to the sermon and say, I wonder if my pastor was speaking truth and go back and test that in scripture. So here's my homework, Pastor Eric. Go do what I did and read every greeting to every New Testament church. And here's what you're going to find. Here are the languages, or excuse me, here are the words that are used to describe those folks gathered in those congregations. Words like elect, words like saints, fellowship, brothers, love, sanctified, the called, the kept, those that have faith of equal standing, and churches. This is important, and the reason why this is important is because every one of those terms biblically are only used to talk about a believer. Do you know what that means? It means that a church should be composed of only those that are genuinely believers. Now, I do need to make this comment because you might be thinking, man, does that mean I can't invite my lost friend? That's not what I said. I'm talking about membership, covenant membership. Who is in the body of Christ? We need to guard the door. But surely a healthy church should have more in attendance than just their members. Surely we should invite people to come and hear the truth of God's word. So don't let Satan twist what I'm saying and you somehow hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying invite, don't invite your lost friends and neighbors to church. You know me better than that. Don't let Satan twist that. But hold on to what is true. There is a distinction between inviting someone to church and someone being a part of the church. Does that make sense? Very important. Something that you need to understand is this. It is a foreign concept in the New Testament for there to be a church that's not composed of only believers not there you have to read it into the text you have to infer it and you have to put something there that's not there it's not there you also need to understand this morning that it is a foreign concept for someone to be a christian and not belong to a local church 
You don't see that either in the scriptures. There are lists in the scriptures for those who are in and those who are out. There are lists for widows. And my goodness, time I do not have to make the case for church discipline. How do you discipline someone that's in the church if they don't belong to the church? Here at Everglades, we hold this truth because it's biblical. And you also need to understand we hold these distinctives as we are locking arms in agreement with our Baptist forefathers as well. Our foundation is biblical. We only follow our forefathers as far as they follow Christ. And where they deviate, we stop following them. But where they continue to follow Christ, we, we lock arms. So biblically, I've laid out the case for you. Now let me lay it out historically. Let me give you some historical evidence of regenerate church membership. The first I could give you is the book of Acts. Acts is a theological history book. We've already talked about that, and obviously it's inspired. It's in the scriptures, but it is a theological history book. It tells us how the gospel spread in the first century through Luke's writing. We fast forward a little bit of time shortly after the Protestant Reformation when the Bible was translated into the heart language of the people. There was a group of folks named the Anabaptists. Now, the Anabaptists are an interesting sort for several reasons, and I don't have time to go into all of it. There were some things they got wrong and went a little bit too far in some things, but there were some things they got right as well. And one of the things they got right was through a simple reading of the Scripture, which is one of the first principles of hermeneutics, is what does the Scripture say in a plain and simple reading? They began to understand that infant baptism was off limits and that instead only converts needed to be believed, I mean, uh, to be baptized. Here are some things that they said. I'll just give you a few short quotes. They said... Now, this would have been in the 1500s, shortly after the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant Reformation, as you know, was 1517. We just talked about that a couple of weeks ago, October the 31st. The Anabaptists said this. This was their definition of the church. When they, when they looked at it, they said that the New Testament church is to be comprised of believers. And that these believers have been transformed by the Holy Spirit through an experience of grace. And they said that baptism is the seal of faith. So I want you to understand the reason that I would bring that up to you is that our Baptist forefathers, though we may not be in complete agreement with them in all things, there are some things we do agree with them on, and this is one of those things. That they began to understand that through the reading of the Scripture that the New Testament church is made up and comprised of only believers who have been scripturally baptized. Third, you can check me on this as well. Go look at the First London Confession of 1644. Our Baptist forefathers, it's interesting, had a statement of faith already in place prior to the Westminster Confession of Faith where they were already articulating what they believed about the church. You can read the whole thing. You can find it online. I'll just read you a small portion. Here's what they said. They said the church is a company of visible saints called and separated from the world, baptized. Now, in 1643 through 1649, fourthly, the Westminster Assembly met 
And they met over a period of years to sort out various things. But one of the things that they met to sort out was, what do we do with all these separatists that are now beginning to teach about baptism after conversion? And so they began to talk about that, and they began to discuss that, and they were called dissenting brethren, our forefathers. And the dissenting brethren were given their opportunity to share their biblical convictions. Long story short, the Westminster Divines didn't see it that way. And so there was a separation that took place. The Westminster Divines rejected that the church is made up of believers only. They rejected believers' baptism. And as I have already mentioned, church history tells the story of how our Baptist brothers and sisters suffered greatly for it. Fifth, to the confession of faith that we are studying as a church family, the Second London Confession, of 1689 in an attempt as I've told you before to show solidarity amongst those that were at that Westminster assembly our Baptist forefathers like Nehemiah Cox and Benjamin Keach and others were instrumental in formulating the 1689 confession and then they also uh, made some distinctives for us as Baptists let me read you a portion of it from Article 26. This is what they say. This is on page 49. This is what they said. All people throughout the world who profess the faith of the gospel and obedience to God through Christ in keeping with the gospel are and may be called visible saints and so one of the things that was hotly debated in the Westminster Assembly was the fact that the Baptists said it was right and good to test one another to see if we're in the faith and the Westminster's divine divine's rebuttal was no one can do that but God and we would have to agree that at the end of the day only really truly the, the Lord knows those who are his but when we look at Acts 16, my brothers and my sisters, what did Lydia do? She said, look at my life and see whether or not you see Jesus in me. And what did I reference earlier from Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5? Test yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Oh, I forgot 1 John 5, 13, the purpose statement of that little letter. When he says, my brothers, this is what I'm writing to you so that you'll know. I've written this letter to you so that you'll know whether or not you are in the faith. So our Baptist forefathers saw this, that in order to be a part of the true church, you needed to be born again. And in order to be part of a true church, your faith or your profession needed to be tested. They went on to say, as long as they do not destroy their own profession by any foundational errors un or unholy living... And that's when church discipline would step in. They go on to say in this little section, all local congregations ought to be made up of these. Folks that are born again and folks that have been scripturally baptized. I mentioned Benjamin Keach. He wrote a book uh, called The Glory of a True Church. Let me read you just a few things that he said. 
very quickly. He said every house or building consists of both matter and form. In other words, when you look at a building, you see that there's a foundation. You see there's bricks, there's mortar, beams, etc. And he says, so does the church of Christ. It is the house of the living God. The matter or the materials which it is built on are lively stones. In other words, converted persons. He goes on to say, a church of Christ, according to the gospel institution, is a congregation of godly Christians who do by mutual agreement and consent give themselves to the Lord and to one another. He goes on to say that the beauty and the glory of which congregation doth consist in their being all converted persons or lively stones, being by the Holy Spirit united to Christ, the precious cornerstone, and the only foundation of every Christian, as well as any particular convert congregation. I'm going to fast forward to John Dagg. John Dagg was one of the early professors at Southern Seminary. Matthew, you'll appreciate this. Our first seminary at Southern Baptist was Southern Seminary. And that seminary was clearly founded on the doctrines of grace. He said many things that were very important. One of the things that he said was this. He wrote a book called Manual of Church Order. I would encourage you to read that. But he said, to be visible saints, a holy life must be super added to a profession of true religion. In other words, it's not just enough to say that you believe Jesus. There needs to be evidence of conversion. And he goes on to say, and they who do not exhibit the light of a holy life, whatever their professions may be, have not scriptural claim to be considered members of Christ's church. That was in 18. 59 that he wrote that book in 1894 there was another brother by the name of edward hissox and he wrote a directory for baptist churches listen to what he said he said if our churches are to fulfill their mission remain true to their traditions and honor their apostolical pretensions they must insist with unabated vigor on a regenerated church membership. They must, nor must they insist on it in theory only, but take every precaution to maintain it in practice. He goes on to say this, Pastor Eric, this is for you and for me. Those pastors make a grave mistake and are grievously in fault who hurry persons into the church without giving the body a fair and full opportunity of gaining evidence of their regenerate state. They may ask a few leading questions themselves, which anyone, a saint or a sinner, could answer and call a vote on their reception, to which a few will respond and many will remain silent. No fellowship is accorded by the body since no evidence is obtained. The church may seem to be prosperous because baptisms frequently occur but the moral strength of the body is weakened, rather, and disorder introduced where order should prevail. Amen. Hallelujah. I'm going to give him a high five when I get to heaven. He is writing in the context of Finneyism. Charles Finney and the new measures are raging at the time that he's written this, and the purity of the church is de being devalued and devalued and devalued. 
And Finneyism has taken hold and is a, is, is a plague across denominational lines at the time that he writes this. And he is saying, we must not lose our way. We must not lose our way. We must not lose our way. Look for the old paths. See where they are and walk in them and fight for them and don't lose them. What does this have to do with reaching the unreached? My brothers and my sisters, it has everything to do with it. It has everything to do with it. We live in a day as well where missions has been so devalued that we think that doing certain things is mission work and it's really not. Reaching the unreached means this. We have to be serious about understanding and preserving the gospel. We must be serious about understanding and preserving the gospel. You've heard me say this forever. You can repeat it by now. If we've lost the gospel, we've lost everything. Number two, we must practice regenerate church memberships. My goodness, when you go to a foreign land or you go wherever and you share the gospel with people, we are called to make disciples to gather them into a congregation. So whether it's in Africa or whether it's in China or whether it's here in Okeechobee, someone that comes to faith in Christ must be attached to a local body of believers. And then number three, we must practice believers' baptism. We must practice believers' baptism. Those are indisputable parts of what it means to be a missionary church. This is what we've seen in Paul's ministry and in his life and his first missionary journey. And as we're looking at his second missionary journey, it's about the gospel. It's about gathering people together in a body. It's about growing them up in Christ. It's about seeing them follow uh, in believers' baptism. We don't need to make it too hard. We just really need to be obedient. And as I close, I wonder again, as we think, maybe you're here today and you, you don't know Christ. I want to encourage you to respond to the gospel through repentance and faith. Because that's the biblical response to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ and to trust him alone. And maybe you're here and you've never followed the Lord in baptism. And you need to talk to a pastor or talk to a youth leader or talk to somebody about that. I want to encourage you to do that. That's your first step of obedience. That you would proclaim your faith and trust in Christ to a lost and dying world by going through the waters of, of baptism. Let's pray together. God, my heart's so full. There's so much that I want to say. I trust, Lord, that as we've looked at a biblical evidence and as we've looked at our historical evidence and we've looked at our roots both biblically and historically, God, give us a greater confidence in what we believe. And it doesn't matter if we're weird to the world. It doesn't matter if we're weird to a church world, God. It doesn't really matter. We don't have to defend ourselves. We just have to square our shoulders and stand on the truth of your word. Oh, God, give us a resolve that only comes from you. God, I pray that you continue to reform biblically this church.
God, you've brought us so far. There's so far to go. I pray that you continue to be patient. God, I pray that you continue to work. I pray that you continue to draw and continue to save. And may we worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.